Hello and welcome to Talking Additive, episode 41. We make over 100 different part numbers a year, believe it or not. At least a third of those are 3D printed parts. We print a lot of stuff. The limits are really endless. More on this and other topics on Talking Additive. On Talking Additive, we sit down with business leaders, innovators, and allies to discuss the impact of adopting 3D printing in their businesses. How does adopting additive manufacturing positively benefit a business today? How is the role of 3D printing evolving within design, manufacturing, education, and our lives? And what will be possible in the future? Welcome to the 41st episode for the Talking Additive podcast. Talking Additive launches new episodes on Tuesdays. We have two guests today, Jeremy Robinson, the motocross racing technologist for Kawasaki Motors Corporation, USA, and Dylan George, Ultimaker's application engineering manager for the Americas. Welcome to Talking Additive to both of you. It's my pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Yeah, it's going to be fun today. So the topic today will end up being laser focused on metal FFF. And this includes the long lead up before there was an Ultimaker metal expansion kit, and also some of the things he's doing now with some of the elements that are now available. Uh, so I'm mostly a facilitator today for conversation between the two of you as you discuss the kinds of parts and experiments in uh, metal FFF that, Jeremy, you've been exploring recently with the Kawasaki racing team. So why don't we start with you, Jeremy? Uh, my name is Jeremy Robinson, and I'm the motocross racing technologist for Kawasaki Motors Corporation USA. In my department, we support our professional 450 motocross and supercross racing team. Fantastic. And uh, Dylan? Yeah, my name is Dylan George, application engineering manager for the Americas for Ultimaker. And I've been with Ultimaker coming up on my fourth year now and started my journey with 3D printing, actually working in industry and automotive, uh, where we eventually brought in some 3D printers, just happened to be Ultimakers. And we'd use those to print jigs, fixtures, and tooling. And then years later, uh, coming into Ultimaker uh, internally and helping our customers do the very same thing. Fantastic. Yeah, thanks for joining today, Dylan. Let's start with setting the stage. So, Jeremy, what are some of the ways that FFF technology has been fitting into the array of AM technologies that the Kawasaki Racing Team has been exploring over the past couple of years? Uh, so for the past four or five years, we've implemented FFF printing in our shop here uh, to help complement a lot of our subtractive uh, manufacturing methods. Uh, we make customized racing parts that are specialized for our bike to mostly custom fit the rider to the bike and to be able to add components like our data acquisition logging system as well uh, that doesn't come on the, the production bike. And so we've been implementing polymer printing for a number of years with a couple of S5s that we have here. Uh, and we've been utilizing everything from PLA and PTEG for form fit and function testing, different nylons, glass filled, carbon fiber filled nylons for parts that go on the bike. We use it for uh, making brackets for the mechanics to hold tools fixtures for the engine mechanics to measure parts more accurately. We really have completely embraced 3D printing in general here. You know, a number of years ago, 
everyone kind of wondered how would we possibly use it and once we brought a printer in-house it went from the idea of making a couple of parts to making literally hundreds of parts each year. So for us, we are always looking for new ways to improve our processes, new ways to improve our bike, and you know the ability to bring in and do some metal FFF printing along with our, our polymer printing is for us an exciting possibility. It's a little bit different of a process we found, but nevertheless, it's definitely something that's going to help complement our workflow. Now, Dylan, to sort of paint you into this space a little bit, I thought it might be worth you mentioning a couple of things just for the conversation here. While you don't have a background in racing, you do have a background in automotive parts that has provided a little bit of context for you. And you, of course, support like all kinds of processes and verticals in your role. Uh, do you want to share just briefly some of your background automotive parts that kind of has helped you prepare for being supportive to Jeremy in this space? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, this whole partnership has been really helpful because we've learned a lot. I think that was one, one of the first conversations that Jeremy and I had was that was one of the most important things. I remember you were talking to me, Jeremy, with like some excitement around the whole thing, but you told me too that above and beyond, we need to focus on learning this process and learning what we can and can't do and understand the technology better and better each time. The whole point of exploring is to find what you didn't know before. And so that's that's been really helpful for myself anyways, to keep that mindset as we go through it. And we've gone through a number of different changes and, and things as we've learned, but um, I think an important thing, having never raced, but have ridden motorcycles, and of course, I'm a huge gearhead with, with automotive, is that at the end of the day, a human is going to interact with this part. Uh, a human is, is going to, you know, that's the central focus. So creating strong parts, creating parts that feel natural in the hand or wherever they're interacting with the rider is paramount. It can't be some obscure shape or texture that is not conducive to the rider in all aspects needs to help the rider. It needs to be a tool for them to use or something that they don't even think about so that they can concentrate on the, the very important thing of, of winning races. So I know personally, I've been trying to soak up as much as I can every time we interact and every time we work on bits and pieces of the project to move it forward. And that's been one of the most important things I've learned so far. So Jeremy, let's kick off this discussion on metal FFF. What are some of the experiments so far for prototyping and on-bike parts that you have been testing with Dylan and beyond with this technology that's new to you? Well, we have a lot of established processes already here. So when we look at changing things up, you know, it has to make sense. And so with the development of metal materials applying to FFF, for us, it gave us the potential to be able to print out near net shapes that we could then do some minor machining on or create geometries that would be more difficult to machine. So for us, it's been a matter of learning how the printing process and the sintering process affects or has an influence on in the shape of the part. So wall thicknesses are really important, for example. Overhangs need to be minimized. Definitely putting the holes in after the fact. There's still going to be some fixturing and drilling 
once the part comes back from sintering. We've been surprised at how we've been able to address the weight issue of the materials because we're typically working with aluminum and titanium here. Uh, and the fact that those materials are difficult to 3D print and center, really you're, you're left with stainless steels and tool steels, which are typically heavier, but they're also more durable. And so it could be an advantage to use those materials over an aluminum if you don't take a big weight penalty. And so we've actually been doing a lot of exploring on how to modify our designs so that we can take advantage of the stronger materials and achieve a near same weight on the parts. And then we gain not wasting as much material and not spending as much time in machining and the tooling related to that. Being able to get geometry, like I said, that would be more difficult to machine. With the one part that we've been working on with Dylan, the texture is actually added to the outside of the part for grip. And that texturizing is essentially free because the slicing software does it for you. It's not something you have to design in or model in in your CAD. And it's not something that takes longer to create on the part. Uh, like, say, for example, knurling wood in a, in a machining process, it's an extra step you would do. That, while not a long process, it's still a process and tooling is needed and all the other things. Texturizing and 3D printing, like I said, is nearly free time-wise and expense-wise. So that's yet another benefit that is something we can gain from. Would you be willing to maybe go into some details about one of the parts? Can you talk about for example, the shift lever? Yeah, so one of the parts that really caught our eye as far as a potential project for metal FFF was the shift lever tip. We make our own shift lever just to be able to customize the fit for the rider, you know, change the length of it, the shape of it, etc. And the tip of it takes quite a beating in the dirt and rocks and the aluminum one that we've been machining wears out rather quickly and it's generally a round shape and it involves some machining that does take some time and it's a little bit tricky. We actually do it in a five axis machine just to save us a number of setups. You could do it other ways, but you know, when we looked at 3D printing it, it was something that was going to save us a heck of a lot of time and machining and setup and be a material that's more durable and kind of get us everything that we wanted out of a 3D printing process. What's been tricky has been just working with, like I said, the wall thicknesses of the part so that it doesn't distort and how to how to support it in centering. That's been another eye-opener for us. Aside from that, it's a matter of looking at what we've learned and see if we can apply it to some other parts on the bike. Other brackets and things, for example, that we're currently fabricating that take a long time is, is something that we could probably easily print and center and have a finished part right away. Yeah, that's been a really interesting piece too, where when I first came into the project, we were we were looking at almost a one-to-one -one part from the machined part to as far as geometry goes to the, the printed part. And slowly, as we learned what worked and what didn't work, we thought, well, let's make this wall thinner. And then even the upper stage of the part, we thought, well, we could make that thinner too. And then slowly and slowly, we 
ate away at the the meat of the part. I think it's one of the thinnest walled parts that I've ever printed anyway. But we're almost at the point where it's that original weight that we had from the aluminum part. I think we're right at that point just by having to make it thinner, of course. So we're, we're having to find ways to reduce that weight, but the hope is that it's a much more durable part in comparison well, right? So trying to make a part that lasts longer. Right, and that's the thing, that it's the strength of the materials that's allowing us to go yeah. more, more and more minimal on the part design to, right. to minimize the amount of material in it. We're able to do that simply because of the strength of the material. When we first looked at it, we thought, well, that material is kind of overkill for what we do. We don't really need uh, a material that strong and because it's heavy. Um, but the reality is, is you can get away with a lot less material. That's another benefit in 3D printing this part. You don't need as much material. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I like too how when we're talking about printing the 17.4 stainless as opposed to machining aluminum, I think it's been really helpful too when you and I are iterating back and forth with the various design changes and things that we realize that we shouldn't be treating really key surfaces as machined finish, right? It's uh, right. It's like a casting. And so we have our near net shape. And for critical surfaces, we really need to keep that part of the design at the forefront of our minds when we're going through and, and having an expectation of what's going to come back to us after it's centered. The way that you've looked at it too and tried to optimize the surfaces that you do need to machine afterwards has been really helpful because it can kind of zero us in on the features that we focus on for printing and then the features that we focus on for post-processing with machining so that the printed part that is delivered to you, you can still fixture appropriately. Right. You can still reference a surface that you need, right? If that's not printed properly, right. then all bets are off. But if we do our job with printing a good part and centering a good part, then you can reference the appropriate surfaces and still get your final part that you need. That's the end goal anyway. And I think an important point needs to be made, too, that it is going to involve trial and error with most projects because the part is going to behave in ways that you don't expect. And so you print it out. When you get it back from sintering, it may not look the way you expected it to look. Right. And you might have to change your design a little bit based on that. You know, it's really, a, again, back to the expectations part um your expectations really do need to change a bit it's not a finished part when you get it back you will have to do some surface prep uh maybe drilling some holes sintering does not work well with holes in the part and it's just a matter of the mass of material that's in every area of the part right it takes a little bit of learning how metal behaves if you're going to design parts in metal yep not just from an end finished part, but also in making the part. Even when you look at machining a part, you look at how it's going to warp. You might change how you hold it, or you might even change the design if you're going to be machining a part. The same applies here. You might need to change the design of your part based upon the fact that you're going to be metal FFF printing it as opposed to machining it. Right. Yeah, like if we were machining it, you'd have to be really focused on 
your fixture setup and if you're going to cause chatter or yeah. anything with the part. And then, you know, if we're printing it, you need to be concerned about center of gravity yep. and how that part's going to settle when it's being centered. So certainly new tools that, that we're both learning as we go through the process. Yeah, I mean, when you're machining a part, you never think about the center of gravity of it no. <laughs> or the, how much material is in a certain area. Uh, you're just cutting away the geometry you need, yeah. and then you have your part. Here, you're not having to cut away any material to create the geometry, but you are needing to think about mass in different areas. And like you said, the center of gravity of it and how is that big, long geometry of your part, how is that going to behave in centering uh, and is it even going to survive or should you do something different? That has all been a big eye opener for me because you don't have those challenges in plastic printing, right? Typically, I mean, you just add a little more support material here or there or you rotate the orientation or something like that, but you can't always do that. Right. In metal, it has to be centered in a certain way that's suitable for centering, not for printing. Right. And What's cool is that the part that we've been working on together, it would never survive in a polymer state. Something that is really hitting me now is on the same machine that I print a polymer or a nylon carbon fiber composite, on that same machine I can make a metal part. I just need to send it out to be binding center. And I, I love that aspect of it. So I do have to learn these, these new little bits and pieces of the process, but I don't need an entirely new tool to do it just a new set of skills that I, I, I need to remember along the way. Right, a new set of skills and a new outlook on the process. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, speaking of new set of skills, I mean, you've mentioned a couple of things that you've picked up as kind of best practices going back and forth on this, like, you know, taking the drill out of the part design, putting it as a post-processing step, ended up being more efficient. Dylan was mentioning treating it as cast and having some plan for bringing back some of the uh, material off of it to get your net shape at the end. Are there some other back and forth discoveries you've been making in these pretty, you know, crucial early metal FFF experiments, things that you're like, wow, you know, we hit on this, this is going to be a really useful approach to a type of geometry or something. I think we've learned a lot, but, uh, you know, one of them is, is uh, thin walls, certainly. Another is with the parts that Jeremy and his team makes there, they have a requirement for a high level of accuracy. So they need those machine surfaces. And so it's kind of like a, uh, a relay run where I need to be able to reach the minimum requirement for Jeremy to take the baton and take it home to the finish line. And so I need to be able to print a suitable as cast surface for them to be able to machine and get the final part. So, through iteration, we've learned along the way what, what we can and what we can't do and certain pieces of geometry we need to change. And we'll continue to learn on this too. Originally, we, we printed the parts directly so they would sit directly in the centering oven. And I think Jeremy probably remembers the first set of samples that we got back. You have an open cylinder that is going to shrink in the process it's sitting on a ceramic plate in the oven that essentially doesn't shrink at all. And so what happens is you get a very non-circular part uh, that comes back from the centering process. And so we're still going through iterations how to get the, the most efficient process, the most efficient way to do it, but also the best possible part. 
I know that at least from my side, I've learned that it is crucial to have a shrink plate or a setter that you place your part on top of so that all those stresses just simply dissipate between that shrink plate and the part that you really want. That's been a really big learning lesson from this whole process in order to get you a circular part. Because ultimately, Jeremy's going to have to fixture to that surface and to do the post-machining. So if you have a printing process that has a, a surface you're going to need to locate to for machining, you have to really zero in on how do I make that the most repeatable shape possible. I don't, I'd be curious to hear what Jeremy thinks, but I know that that's been a big focus of mine on the printing side of things anyway. Well, and that's really key, Dylan. You've touched on the most important part of Metal FFF, which is, let me back up a little bit. You know, when you get into 3D printing in general, typically polymer printing, there's this idea of designing your part so that it can be printed, right? Designed for additive manufacturing, right? So you start learning about that when you're designing parts. I speak as a designer, right? So I'm, you know, I'm designing parts and I'm thinking about how I'm going to print them easily, quickly. There might be a certain objective, right? So I might add some chamfers in an area that I wouldn't normally just because instead of a radius, because it's going to print nicer, it's going to be a nicer end part. I'm going to, you know, minimize my overhangs as much as I can. When you decide to get into metal FFF, you need to, of course, think about those things, but you also need to think more on the sintering process. So really you need to get a little bit of an education on the effects of the sintering process in general, if you're not already familiar with it. As a designer, you know, you need to think about not only those overhangs and angles that you have on your part, but as Dylan was touching on, you need to think about that, you know, secondary support structure that helps spread the heat out in the process. And so that's been the biggest eye-opener for us has been learning about the sintering process. Um, there is some extra steps involved in the metal printing side compared to polymer printing because of the parts larger than your design, right? It, you have to scale it up because it's going to shrink down. And they don't always shrink uniformly. It's based upon how much material is in it. So there is some learning there as well in how much you have to scale it up to get your finished part. But you also have to learn about the sintering process. And when you're designing the part, you have to think about those reference planes on your part if you're going to be machining it. Another thing that Dylan's touching on there is you have to reference all of your other features you're going to add in later off of a surface that's, that's a rough surface. It's not necessarily going to be perfectly flat or square or you know have a really nice surface finish. So you're, you're referencing this relatively rough surface by, you know, by machining standards. And that's why we talk about it being more like a cast part. It's, it has that rough finish to it, and there's nothing that you can't make it more smooth in the sintering process. That It is what it is. And so when you're designing the part, you say, well, I'm going to need to have a hole exactly here with a tolerance to it. Okay, how are you going to find that location later when you get the part back? And really just apply some of the same ideas you would if you had a cast part. 
you might have to machine a reference surface in to then reference off of that to drill your hole. And it doesn't necessarily need to be, when I say a machine surface, you could sand it smooth. It doesn't need to be CNC milled or ground surface. It could be simply taking it to uh, the sander, sanding it smooth. Okay, now I have a smooth, flat surface. I'm going to measure off of here, and I'm going to put my hole there. And there we go. You, you could fixture it in a drill press, in a mill, manual mill, uh, CNC mill, whatever. The point is you need to think about all of those things before when you're designing the part. So that means you might need to leave some extra material where you're going to sand that reference plane down. Leave some extra material between a couple walls because you might need to machine that later to get your tight fit on something or whatever the, the example might be. Um, in our case, our part has been, a if you imagine, a cylinder with a clevis attached to the end so that it can rotate around a pin. We don't plan on leaving that a cylinder. It's been a cylinder because that was the easy way to machine it. That doesn't mean it needs to be that way. And we don't, our end goal for this whole project is actually to customize that shape so that we can get a more unique shape that will be more difficult to machine, but more practical on the bike. And 3D printing allows us to achieve those goals so we're still in the exploration stage of all of this, but it's one of those things that's going to explode at some point into a whole bunch of parts once everyone sees the potential of it here, just like what happened with us with plastic printing and what happened with everything else here when we introduce a new process. We have some other machines we've introduced. We had a couple ideas for some parts to use the machine for, and it turns out the machine's running, you know, three, four, five hours a day now instead of just once every once in a while just because people see the potential. So, yeah, it it's not something that if you're new to 3D printing, it's not necessarily something you want to dive right into. Uh, you want to kind of get your feet wet a little bit with plastic 3D printing first, I think. Yeah. But... I'm seeing more and more resources out there to help you learn about uh, metal 3D printing. And I think as that those resources increase, you know, it's going to be even easier to understand the process. Yeah, I totally agree. And we're trying to add software tools and stuff to help to some degree. Yeah. I have one question. I don't know that this is something that you're trying, but I know that some of our customers have been trying this to use the fact that you're producing the part with 3D printing to add like datum geometry that can survive the process and give like an easy reference for that next stage at next machining setup. Have you experimented with that or mostly solved that in preparing the surfaces and then knowing how to go in and fixture the tool next? So the shape of our part doesn't make that very easy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the inside of the clevis is really critical. So that should be your reference point, but of course, it's inside, <laughs> right? It's inside a cavity. So that's been a challenge in locating it in the machine process. But, you know, so far we've had good luck, good results with consistency of prints. Uh, that's been important for us. As long as the prints are consistent, we've been able to have really good results in the machining process afterwards. So, you know, in the beginning when the part had a lot of material to it in different areas, it was coming out inconsistent. And so as we've refined 
the amount of material in certain areas of the part is becoming more consistent of a print and more consistent of a centered part. So that's all part of that learning process. Not just designing a part, but designing a part that survives, centering, that still keeps its geometry. Well, I wanted to highlight too, like you brought up uh, starting with polymer printing. And I think it's a really good point because when you first start out with printing polymers, your whole focus is how do I get this part to survive the printing process, right? Do I need to add support here? Do I need to change a fillet to a chamfer, et cetera? And uh, while you still need to keep in mind with metal printing with FFF, I think the whole focus is almost just graduated to the printing part is pretty easy. But the centering part is the part that I really need to pay attention to. And that's what I need to plan for. At least that seems like that's been our focus is the parts tend to print fairly straightforward, but that's the easy part. The hard part, the part that you really learn a lot uh, about the entire process is how the material uh, changes or how the material interacts with the, the centering process. And so that's been a really big learning opportunity. I think it really would be a lot harder if you didn't first have a good understanding of printing polymers. But it seems like a, a natural progression to um, graduate into a more difficult material. And then with enough practice, that'll be commonplace as well. Yeah, exactly. And that's really the point I was trying to make, Dylan, was the fact that you have to think about designing your part for the centering process in general. You've talked about some of the challenges of working with this unique process with the DNS stage, but what about talking about how the fully metal parts are like to work with once they come back to you compared to other parts that you would you know, take and tap, drill, sand, grind, et cetera, when you're doing work in your workshop there? How have the parts behaved compared to other metal parts? Well, quite honestly, I was surprised at how easy it was to machine because it does go through the sintering process. I wasn't sure of what type of hardness the material would possess and how hard would it be to drill a hole in it or what have you. But it actually seems to come out in a natural state as you would purchase the material to machine it, you know, in a more or less normalized state. It's not really any more of a challenge to machine it than if you purchased a block of the material and you implemented a subtractive manufacturing method, it's all the same. I mean, I used all the same parameters to drill holes in it as I would any other part, and it goes well. So Yeah, it comes out fairly close to an annealed state, which is convenient for post-processing. Hey, that, that's something that I do like about working with this material is I grew up doing manual machining work. And uh, although stainless is more difficult to machine than aluminum, it's aluminum machines like butter. It's no wonder everybody loves to machine in aluminum. But I like how familiar it is. So I like that you can weld it, you can drill it, you can machine it, sand it, polish it. That's nice that it is a familiar traditional material in the end state. You know, uh, it's not some new alloy that we have special requirements that you need to adhere to. So it's a nice kind of cherry on top after you've done all the hard work of designing and, and iterating and debining and centering, that it is approachable in its final state, which I find to be really convenient. And the parts don't really look unnatural for a part. I mean, it's not like the surface finish is extremely rough. 
you know, somebody who is not familiar with 3D printing at all would go, what is this? Like, it's, it's a fairly natural surface finish in general. It looks, you know, a bit like a bead blasted uh, finish, if you will. It's not shiny, but it's not rough casting. It's, it's a, a very nice casting surface to compare it to. You know, when we talk about finish sanding it or machining it or whatever, it's, it's really to get the, the dimensions perfect than it is to get the surface perfect. Or if, you ha if it was a sliding surface, of course, surface finish is very important but, so that the two surfaces don't gall together. But um, really, if, if it's a cosmetic surface, if it's a side of the part that people are looking at, it's just a visual thing, it's a great surface. You know, it doesn't look like it came out of a sand mold even. I mean, it's very, very nice of a surface. So it shouldn't really be foreign to anyone. If you were to print out a metal part, it shouldn't look that different to right. a machine part. Aside from, you know, it looks like maybe a machine part that was bead blasted and, and had some layer lines yeah. in it perhaps. But even then, if you texturize the surface, you can't even see the layer lines. You know, you can hide a lot of that in certain ways. So, yeah, I mean, honestly, really surprised at how close to dimensionally accurate the parts are. It's, it's, it's the same as a plastic print as well. Plastic prints, the tolerances are, are not, you know, high tolerances, fine tolerances. When you design a plastic part, you have to allow for a larger tolerance than you would in a machine part where you can machine exactly to the, you know, 0 0.01 of a millimeter or one thou of an inch. Yeah. Plastic printing is no different. It's a rougher tolerance process. You know, it's really all about your expectations going into it. Like I said in the beginning, you have to understand if your expectations are realistic and you have to sort of understand some of the effects of the process going in and what you're going to get in the end. Yeah, that's a good point. That's yeah, because you guys do deal with really tight tolerances, and something that I think is good to point out too is in the green state, which is you know like the state that right off the printer, that's the most opportunistic time to post-process the part because it's very workable. It's like a clay, right? And so what we've started to do is 100% of the parts that we print, we just quickly bead blast them in the green state before sintering, and at least visually that almost eradicates any sort of layer lines, but it really smooths out the whole finish for the end result. So that's been a nice lesson learned too, is just a quick bead blasting really goes a long way. And then of course you can post machine it, you can sandblast after the fact as well, but you get, you get a nice uh, way of cheating there too, uh, to get a nice smooth surface finish. Yeah, I mean, you really do end up developing a whole new set of creative skill sets, right? Yeah, um, yeah you do. Along the way, how can I make this part look better? Yeah, how can I change the design of this part so it works better or prints better or what have you? So there is some experimentation that goes into it as well as quite a bit of creativity. Jeremy, you were mentioning ways in which you're using additive in general to help with customizing the bikes for the riders. What are some opportunities you're looking forward to exploring using Metal FFF? How can that help you address more customization features that might be needed for a particular racer? 
Well, I mean, really the next step for us is to look at all of our parts that we machine and see how we can offload them off of our CNC machines and into a, a 3D printer and change the method of manufacturing the parts for a number of reasons. Again, you know, you're going to use less material going in instead of a large block of material, cutting it down to something, you know, you're going to build up the part. And that also allows for the chance to free up the machine to do other projects that maybe can't be 3D printed. Um, so really the next step for us is just to explore our existing parts that we make. And then from there, I'm sure what will come next will be some creative minds here thinking about some things that we aren't making right now that we can make simply because this process is available. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. This has been a really fun part that we've worked on together. It's funny, I do, uh, I recognize that we probably chose one of the more difficult parts because it's very thin wall, has unsupported regions, does have tight tolerances. So I, I like that we jumped into the deep end because uh, I think by the end of it, you and I are just going to be ready for more. And But really, I mean, that applies to a lot of our parts in general. There's very few parts yeah. that would not apply to that statement. You know, even if it's one specific part of geometry on the part, it might have, you know, O-ring sealing on it, and the rest of it's not critical, but that O-ring groove is. And so there might be that as a challenge, is, is how to implement O-ring sealing on a part or sliding fit on something. But in general, uh, most of our parts are going to apply to that. So it's always going to be a challenge. I don't see us ever printing a part, centering it, and be done. You know, there's always going to be those secondary operations that we'll need to do. But it's no different than fabricating. Uh, oftentimes in fabricating, you know, you're hand cutting or machine cutting out some metal. You have to weld it. You have to drill it. You have to grind it after you weld it. You know, our shop's full of secondary operations. And so this is no different. And it's not a bad thing. What we want to do is take the advantages of 3D printing and then create the basic near net shape and then just finish it with a few quick processes, right? Uh, that O-ring groove, for example, or drilling a hole in it. That takes far less time than machining the part. Yeah. Um, so if you have, say, a tube that carries oil from one place to another, you know, we could 3D print it and just put o-ring grooves on the end and we're done we could make a bracket without holes in it print it out and then drill the holes maybe finish around whatever the bracket's holding on maybe it's uh, electrical connectors maybe it's uh you know an overflow tank for us or something like that uh you know finish where it interfaces with other parts uh, and we're done. We we don't have to make the whole part. The part is printed, centered, done. Yeah. Mostly hands-off, right? What I love about 3D printing is it's almost completely hands-off. You prep the machine, right, your build surface, you put your material in, make sure you have uh, the right print core, you slice it. Once you send that file to the printer, it's hands-off. Printer does all the work. It builds it up from nothing. You don't have to flip the part around like you do in CNC machining. You don't have to prep it beforehand, cutting up stock of material into blocks. You're literally just loading a spool of filament and prepping the bed. Yeah. More or less, that's it. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, I'm oversimplifying it, but in general, you know, it's definitely a more hands-off approach. And we print a lot of things overnight. You know, it's the equivalent of, you know, automating um, CNC machines these days. We've been automating our 3D printing since the beginning uh, because, you know, I can work on a design while I'm in the office, prep the printer, send the file to the printer, have it start printing. I'll go home, right? I'm at home, come back in the morning and the part's done with no interaction from any, any user. That's really another thing that I really like about 3D printing is not only can you make parts relatively quickly compared to, say, machining parts, but it's hands-off. Great point. You know, even if you have a centering oven of your own, you know, I'm not so familiar with that as much as I am other processes, but for the most part, the centering is almost hands-off. Um, obviously, you have to prep the oven, warm it up, and all that stuff, but, you know, if you went all in and you had all the equipment so you could do it all in-house, it's still relatively hands-off. Yeah. Um, so that's another advantage for us in 3D printing parts, aside from all the other things we're talking about, right? Being able to make geometry that would be difficult to machine, not wasting as much material because you're only using the material that the part needs. But on top of all that, it's, it's hands-off. And so uh, we're a small group here. Uh, we make over 100 different part numbers a year, believe it or not. It sounds like a lot but it adds up quickly. And at least a third of those are 3D printed parts. Uh, I haven't taken inventory lately, but we, we print a lot of stuff. And it could be something simple like a little clip to hold a wire or hold a connector from our data acquisition system. Or it can be you know, a tool or a number of tools for, for people. Or we print um, drawer organizers for tools. So if you open a lot of the drawers around here, you'll find all the tools, measuring tools, some wrenches, other specialty tools, it's particularly in the engine room, uh, is all organized with 3D printed trays that perfectly hold that tool so it doesn't get knocked around in the drawer. So the list is really endless. We 3D print molds to cast material in. So the limits are really endless on how you can use 3D printing in general. So I think this is just another step. We're just at the beginning of all of this. So when you ask me, how do I plan on using metal 3D printing? It's a really tough question to answer because it's just an organic process for us that continues to grow and grow and grow. And again, it's really due to the creativity of a lot of people in our group thinking outside the box, right? as the saying goes, you know, thinking of, you know, well, we've always done it that way, but what if we change and we do it this way? Uh, and we're okay with exploring that. You know, we have the time and ability to do that with the need that we need to improve. You know, in racing, it's all about your last result. Mm -hmm. um, nobody cares how you did last year or year before that, or, or even your potential. It's all about your last race. Did you win the last race? So, we're always trying to improve. Obviously, our competitors are always trying to improve. We believe we're at the front uh, and we want to stay there. So we're always working. Well, that seems like a perfect place to wrap up this discussion. So, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining today. 
Well, Matt, before we go, I want to say thank you for all your work otherwise. Like, I listen to your podcasts and everything, so you guys are doing a great job. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Dylan. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. Always a pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you again to Jeremy Robinson, the motocross racing technologist for Kawasaki Motors Corporation USA, and Dylan George, Ultimaker's application engineering manager for the Americas. Thank you both for joining us today. We hope that you have enjoyed our 41st episode for the Talking Additive podcast. If you have any questions about any topics covered during this episode of Talking Additive, we invite you to post on Twitter or LinkedIn to hashtag Talking Additive, all one word. Talking Additive launches new episodes each Tuesday. Next week, join us to meet two of the Magigoo creators, Edward Borg and Andy Linnaeus from Thought3D. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join the conversation by signing up for news and announcements at talkingadditive.com. Thank you again to Jeremy and Dylan. This episode and the entirety of Talking Additive Season 4 was made possible by generous production and marketing support from Ultimaker, who are also our sponsor for this episode. Episode editor is Paul Pontius from PGP Sound, music and sound mix by Brian Scary and Giulio Carmasi of Hummingbirds Custom Music and Sound. I am Talking Additive's host and producer, Matt Griffin, and thank you for listening. On Talking Additive, we hold conversations with colleagues, customers, and experts about 3D printing's impact on business.